Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. As I mentioned by email this week, we will take our time, we will take both services, parts of both services, to get through our sermon text today in Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 10. The title of the sermon is, referring to Christ, Ascended to Fill All Things. Ascended to fill all things. We, last week, began chapter 4 as Paul is transitioning from largely doctrinal material, simply hammering in the truth about the exalted Christ and his church who has every spiritual blessing in him. And Paul was transitioning to that at the beginning of chapter 4 into essentially the second half of his epistle, his letter to the church at Ephesus. And he had urged them, therefore, in view of all that, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they had been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, And it's not because they are supposed to dream or imagine or wish into being a unity in the church. It's because the church really is one. And the church is one because it is in God who is one. He says there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But now for that opening theme of oneness that really is true, that is the highest reality for the church, Paul speaks of how each of us, he begins to speak of how each of us fit into that one body. And how all of that is because not of our own goodness or because of random chance, but is because of Christ's sovereign work and plan. Harry Eprichard here says, Paul goes on to explain, in our sermon text, how grace marks the origin of the church's growth in a context of diversity within unity. In Ephesians 4, 7-10, Paul turns from the corporate unity, the bodily unity, of the church's basis, chapter 4, 1-6, to the individual diversity of function within that unity and the specifics of leadership within the church, and to the origin of that unity in God's grace. Paul explains the origin of the church's growth, this living diversity within unity, in terms of Christ the giver. Christ the giver is the origin of the church's growth. He's right. The the theme of one, oneness, unity, continues, but now it gets richer as we see the diversity in the unity, and all according to what Christ has done for his church and what he is doing in his church now. Christ is the Lord of the church, and that's why the church is what it is and has what it needs. So, let's read the sermon text, verses 7-10. through 10. You might wonder, when I first read it, why we will have to spend two, two services on it. You'll see. Starting in verse 7. 
But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and he quotes Psalm 68, in which we'll spend a lot of time this morning. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives or led captivity captive, literally. And he gave gifts to men. Paul says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth, or the lower regions of the earth? We'll get there this afternoon. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Well, the big idea here is that the church has all it needs from its ascended Lord. From Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and specifically ascended to heaven. From that ascended Lord, we as his church have all we need. And we'll get to more practical outworkings of that next time we're in chapter 4 here, probably in two weeks, after our brother John's in the pulpit for a week. But first of all, Paul, as always, he lifts our eyes from our own little worlds and lives to the heavenly realities at play. The church has all it needs from its ascended Lord. Verse 7, we see that the ascended Christ has gifted his church with great grace. The ascended Christ has gifted his church with great grace. Before zooming in on verse 7, Let's read again, starting in verse 4, but going all the way to verse 16 to see where Paul is going with all this. So we have the right idea in mind. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high... He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul loves his long sentences. And he packs a lot in. That's where he's going, though. How the church, being a body, is not just a very limited metaphor, word picture. In some contexts, it, it really works like a body with all the body parts all needing to function correctly, and the head is Christ. And Christ will be successful in nourishing his body, causing it to grow up in all things into him. That's where he's going. 
Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul addresses the same issues uh, that we see popping up here uh, by highlighting the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit equips the church by distributing different gifts to different members of the church body. Um, and this doesn't mean you need a, a uh, like a personality test, but it's a spiritual gift test to see what your title is in the church. That's not the point. Um, but it's a general idea of being given all the provisions we need for our uh, because we all have a little different role to play in the, in the body. The Holy Spirit equips the church by distributing different gifts to different members of the church body. And the same sovereign spirit is behind the different functions of different body parts. But here in Ephesians 4, um, the work of the Holy Spirit is still addressed, but the one body and one spirit are particularly viewed in relation to the exalted Christ. It's Christ's spirit whom he's poured out. It's Christ who's doing all this in us. Also, while Paul first says that each member of the church has been given special grace from Christ, each one of us has a special grace given to us by Christ. He then highlights a particular group of people later on as those who, by virtue of their unique callings as communicators of, of the faith, they are Christ's gifts to the rest of the church. The message of Christ he first delivered by the apostles and prophets, and then it was handed down by faithful evangelists and shepherds and teachers. And that message perfectly equips the saints. It accomplishes effective service to the Lord, and it builds up the body of Christ. That's some big picture stuff, but look back at verse 7. Verse 7, notice that we are each given grace as members of Christ's body, it says, according to the measure of Christ's gift. What does that mean? It means Christ measures it out perfectly for each one of us. According to the measure with which he gifted us. He measured it out. And Christ doesn't make mistakes. Clinton Arnold says, Christ does not apportion gifts in a random way, but according to his plan. He is the one who chooses who will receive what gift and determines the amount of the gift that each person will receive. This is the most natural ex explanation of according to the measure. The emphasis here is on Christ's sovereign distribution and apportionment. There is no room left for good works and merit to earn a better gift or a greater portion of a gift. Now we can balance this out by saying... Even Paul tells Timothy to stir up the gift of God that's in him. Uh, we can uh, be negligent in letting the grace God has given us lie dormant, not being as active as we should for the sake of Christ's body and the sake of the gospel. But we already have all we need from Christ if we are in him. He's already given us exactly the grace we need for the life he wants us to live. Those good works he's foreordained, Ephesians 2, for us to walk in, right? Christ himself has measured out great grace to each of us. It's individually specific to each of us. We're each called in exactly the right circumstances because Jesus Christ planned it that way. Don't, don't bemoan the circumstances in which Christ found you. That was part of the plan. It was part of the plan. Each of us were called with exactly the right abilities because Jesus Christ equipped us with them. 
Those, some of us may have to discover some abilities we didn't know he's given us over time. We've each been given exactly the right role in Christ's body because it was Jesus Christ who placed us there. The Lord Christ gave each of us exactly the resources we need to invest in his kingdom. Remember those parables Jesus told about that the talents? Now we talk about having talents like abilities, but the talents back then were units of money, essentially. They were amounts, I should say, of financial resources. He's given us the exact resources we need to invest in his kingdom. Most importantly, Jesus gave each of us his Holy Spirit so that whatever our individual sins and weaknesses are, the Spirit will cleanse and sanctify us. He did that, first of all, in giving us the new birth, regeneration. And then it progressively happens more and more from glory to glory till we perfectly reflect Christ's holiness. We grow up, we grow up into Christ the head. We have what we need from Jesus. Not just as a whole body, but each of us do. Harry Uprichard says this very well. Then when we look at the body of Christ as diversity in unity. He says the unity of the church is not a dull monotone, but a varied kaleidoscope. Many colors. The church is not a collection of mechanical robots turned out on God's assembly line, but a family of God's children differing in their personalities and functions. A living body of complementary organs growing up into Christ the head. The church is not a lifeless pile of rubble on the ground or an ugly tenement block thrown together with no particular shape, but a glorious building constructed in God's way and portraying to that very means God's glory and grace. Remember Ephesians 2, we are the temple of the living God. Remember how much care was put into exactly how the temple was built in the Old Testament. And now in a spiritual sense, God is putting every bit as much care into each block which fits into his temple. Back there at the end of Ephesians 2, it had said, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being of us, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God doesn't build his temple carelessly, or without thought to beauty as well as function. The church is a beautiful thing. We may not, well, we don't see the full beauty yet, obviously, because the church is not glorified yet. It's still in construction. But it's a glorious thing which is being built. Paul says some similar things to what he's saying here. In, in, sorry, Romans chapter 12. I'll start with the more familiar verses. Verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world or this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So you need to be transformed by renewing your mind. And what's the first way to renew your mind? Next verse. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, 
each according to the measure of faith. Same word as the measure of Christ's gift in our sermon text. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Or more briefly, the Apostle Peter says similarly in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied, his manifold, grace. The grace looks different for each of us. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay. But back in our sermon text, how was Christ able to gift us with this kind of grace? Uniquely suited to each one of us. There's a story there. How could he pour out such grace on people like us? As Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, it's because Christ has been exalted over every foe that he has now poured this out on his church. Or as Paul says in verse 8 of our text, Christ has poured out such gifts as a result of his triumph. Here, Paul quotes Psalm 68 to prove his point. And that's going to mean some... some, uh, time spent in psalm 68 this leads to our second point which is verse 8 but it also connects to all of psalm 68 looking at this from a different angle we had said first that the ascended christ has gifted his church with great grace but a different way of putting that secondly in our text is that the ascended lord has lavished his people with great triumph he's richly poured out on us the triumph which he has won The results of that triumph. That's the context of Psalm 68, which Paul quotes here. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. You notice Paul here is quoting part of this psalm, insisting that it necessarily points to Christ pouring out grace on his church. He doesn't say, my point is somewhat similar to what Psalm 68 said on a different topic. No, he's not repurposing the wording of Psalm 68 for an unrelated context. He says, therefore it says. So as we look at Psalm 68, we have to feel the weight of what Paul is declaring. And we need to do something of a deep dive in Psalm 68. Um, And we need to let what God reveals in Ephesians 4 to inform how we read Psalm 68. It's one of those places that, as Peter put it, 1 Peter 1.12, it was revealed to the Old Testament prophets, including David the psalmist, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
the Old Testament had an original context and things for Old Testament saints to to immediately get when they read it. But there's even more for us that was planned all along for us to get when we read the Old Testament. Now that Christ has come. So let's turn to Psalm 68. Psalm 68. Let me give you a bird's eye view of the first half of the psalm before we read it. The Old Testament picture here seems to portray the Lord who descended on Sinai, who descended in fire and smoke on Sinai to give the law to Israel and to become officially their covenant Lord, to officially conclude the Old Covenant there. It portrays the Lord who descended on Sinai as enthroned now between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And enthroned on the ark, he is triumphantly marching through the wilderness with his chosen people and into the promised land of Canaan. He puts the armies of the nations to flight. And then he ascends the hill of Zion, where his temple will be. Maybe David wrote this psalm, many people think this, to celebrate the the time the ark did ascend into its tent in Jerusalem in David's day. The conquest of Canaan was virtually finished. David was the Lord's anointed king enthroned on Zion. And now the sacred presence of God himself would rest on the hill of Zion. But as we'll see, these things foreshadowed the triumphs of God in the flesh. C.H. Spurgeon said about this psalm, he says, This psalm is at once surpassingly excellent and difficult. Its darkness in some stanzas is utterly impenetrable. Well, does a German critic speak of it as a titan, very hard to master. Our slender scholarship has utterly failed us, and we have had to follow a surer guide, Spurgeon says, which is my good excuse for not explaining every verse as we read through it, okay? I'm only hitting the high points. But despite the many intricacies of this psalm, the main message is clear. The ascended Lord has lavished his people with great triumph. Let's read the first three verses. God shall arise, or the Hebrew can also be understood as, let God arise. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, or let God arise and his enemies be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Those words in verse 1, God arise, his enemies be scattered, that points us directly to what was said when Israel set out on their march from Sinai to the promised land. It points us particularly to the Ark of the Covenant as the symbol of God living among Israel. He had come down from heaven to Sinai to dwell among them, and to bring them to the promised rest in Canaan. And then there's this ark. Not Noah's ark, that's different. The ark of the covenant. Not the Indiana Jones thing either. The real ark. It's a chest covered with gold. But it was like a portable throne. Its lid was called the mercy seat. A throne of grace. 
with carved cherubim covering the mercy seat with their wings. And when God arose to advance, when God arose, (laughs) when he arose to advance, and they could see that in the pillar of cloud and fire, it would lift from the tabernacle where the ark was. Then Israel arose to advance, and they, they were led through the wilderness by the ark of the testimony. Numbers chapter 10, verses 11 through 12. In the second year, in the second month, on the twentieth day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. Then down in verses 33 through 36. So they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And here we go. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So that's what the psalmist has in mind. He's recalling that and bringing it into his psalm. But before we go any further, remember there's something greater than the Ark of the Covenant here. The Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, is here. He came and tabernacled among us, Scripture says. His divine glory was veiled to human gaze. His own blood now sprinkles the heavenly mercy seat between the cherubim. He's now enthroned on the greater Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And he's here in the psalm, dimly foreshadowed, Paul says. Now, verse 4, and we'll quickly read verses 4 through 14. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalmon. Some of those last verses are ones that almost no one has figured out because it's difficult Hebrew. But we get the big picture. It's the picture of the enemy fleeing the advance of the Lord with his hosts. And on your own time, sometime, check out Judges chapter 5. That's the song of Deborah and Barak when they defeated their Canaanite oppressors, including Sisera, the general. And if you read that, that sounds a lot like this part of the psalm. So now they're in Canaan, and God is mowing down his enemies. And there's great spoil. And notice, the enemy leaves great spoil, gifts, to be distributed among the Lord's victorious people. That's an ongoing theme here. 
gifts to be distributed to the Lord's people who are victorious with him. Verse 15. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode, yes, where the Lord will dwell forever? The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. All right, we need to park here. This is the heart of the psalm. It's a place where, where Paul points us directly. Verses 15 through 16 talks about the tallest mountains in Canaan, the far northern region of Bashan. Think the Golan Heights today in Israel including snow-capped Mount Hermon itself, way up in the north. Mountains which were probably, it seems, from archaeology, filled with temples of pagan gods. But those high mountains are green with envy. They're jealous. They're jealous of Mount Zion. Mount Zion is just a little hill in its own right. It's not even a mountain as we think of it typically. It's a little ridge. But Mount Zion, though it's small in the eyes of the other mountains, God has chosen Zion as his dwelling place. And now the mighty one of Sinai is ascending to his throne on Mount Zion. The one of Sinai is now in the sanctuary. There's more I could say about verse 17. Just briefly, the picture seems to be of the angelic hosts and the chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands, numberless, in other words, and the Lord is among them. Matthew Henry says a lot more about that, comparing it to Jesus being accompanied by the angels, but I, I don't have time for that. Go to verse 18. David Dixon, in his com- old commentary, said about verse 18, The praises of God and the joy of the church are perfected in Christ. No satisfaction in the shadows till Christ the substance be looked unto. Therefore, here the Lord's Spirit led his people to look through the shadow of the ascending of the ark toward the city of David unto the ascending of God incarnate, represented by the ark, into heaven. Thou hast ascended on high. By the way, This should be obvious. The psalm is speaking of Yahweh of hosts, the Lord God. He ascended on high. Paul says that's Christ. He ascended on high. Jesus is the most high God, obviously. Who ascended on high? Jesus Christ. And who is this Christ who ascends the hill of the Lord? He is the Lord of hosts, the King of glory. We think of Psalm 24, 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Well, did you notice 
an important difference between what the psalm says in our Bibles and what Paul said when he quoted it. Look at it. Verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Paul quotes it as, you gave gifts to men. Why is that difference? Well, a lot of discussion about this. Um, For one thing, Paul may be summarizing the bigger picture of the psalm, where indeed throughout the psalm, God does distribute the gifts that he receives from his, from rebels, from those who oppose him. He does distribute those gifts then to his people. He gives power and strength to his people as we go through the psalm. For another thing, uh, there is, uh, we do find a different reading um, in certain very old translations of the Old Testament. So it's possible there was originally the reading that Paul gives here. So it's really a discussion of whether Paul is exactly quoting something or whether he is summarizing a little bit as he quotes. In any case, as F.F. Bruce says, the original picture is of a victorious king ascending the mountain of the Lord in triumphal procession, attended by a long train of captives, receiving tribute from his new subjects, and bestowing largesse, bestowing Gifts upon the crowds which line his processional route. In any case, as we'll see, the second half of the psalm speaks of the Lord bestowing every good thing, every necessary resource upon his people because he has won the victory. What he takes from his enemies, he gives to his people. Get that and and you've got it. What God takes from his enemies, he gives to his people. He shares his triumph with us. The Geneva Bible had this note in it in the 1500s. As God overcame the enemy of his church, took them prisoners, and made them tributaries, so Christ, which is God manifested in the flesh, subdued Satan and sin under us and gave to his church most liberal gifts of his spirit. Remember earlier in Ephesians what Paul had said about our condition before Christ saved us, before God raised us with Christ. He had said Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and the way he says it, he makes it clear this is true of everyone before they come to faith in Christ. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, meaning Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, that is, fit fit objects of God's wrath, like the rest of mankind, he says. When God saved us, he took us supernaturally out of a condition which was utterly guilty because we were sinners. It's who we were. It's what we loved. It was also utterly pitiable. We were enslaved to it. And not just to sin impersonally, but though the world might laugh at it, 
we were enslaved spiritually to Satan and his unseen hosts who spur the world on in its rebellion against God. And that can look like a very respectable religiosity. It can look like people who go to church. Or it can look like people who are very obviously rebels. Or anything in between. But Paul says this is true of us and of everyone else, the rest of mankind, apart from Christ. He told the Jewish leaders the best of the best. And outwardly, as they thought, in the eyes of Israel, he told them they were of their father, the devil, and the works of their father, they do. This is true of everyone, how they're naturally born into this world, because we are a fallen race in Adam. We have turned away from our maker, and we are under the sway of the evil one. But why do I bring that up? Well, because you have to understand what Paul is saying Christ won the victory against, what he freed us from. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17, Since therefore the children whom God planned to bring to glory, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. He became flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to offer himself as the perfect blood sacrifice because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness of sins. To release us from sin and Satan, he had to die in the place of sinners under the, the judgment fueled by God's righteous wrath. Colossians 2 tells us, In him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you, Christians, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. That is, when you came to faith in Christ, that's because God made you spiritually alive. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So what is this triumph in which Christ the Lord leads a host of captives in his train? First of all, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. God did that in Christ at the cross. According to John 12, which we just read today, so it should be fresh in your minds. When Jesus was lifted up from the earth on the cross, this world was judged. The ruler of this world was cast out. So that Jesus Christ would now draw all people to himself. When he had done that, he sealed his victory by rising from the dead. And once risen from the dead, having appeared to many, he ascended bodily into the third heaven, the heavenly Zion, the Eden or paradise of God. 
As the second Adam, he won so much more than the first Adam lost. He was lifted up in the company of heaven's host to the right hand of God, where this son of David received the throne of his father David, but exalted far above David's throne. It's a throne that's immortal and incorruptible, eternal in the heavens. And he ascended to that throne, the clouds as his chariots, the angels as his entourage. And this triumph possession, procession, this triumph procession had vanquished foes to display. That's the picture in Colossians. The devil's hosts, who had so long held humanity in a death grip, as they'll be called in Ephesians 6, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, they were disarmed at the cross. And now, with the risen Christ ascended to heaven, they're put to open shame for the universe to see. Like a Roman general might drag defeated rebels through the streets of Rome in his triumph procession behind his chariot. It's as if Jesus enters the gates of heaven which are lifted up for him. He ascends in the clouds as the Son of Man appears before God the Father and he says, These are the serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy that I have trampled underfoot. I saw there was no one else to intercede, so my own arm brought me salvation. My righteousness upheld me. I put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on my head. Now here I am. I'm the offspring of the woman. I've crushed the serpent's head. The dragon is bound. He may no longer bind the nations in darkness as he once did. But again, when Jesus did this, entering heaven in triumph, John Calvin says it was not himself that God enriched with the spoils of the enemy, but his people. And neither did Christ seek or need to seek his own advancement, but made his enemies tributary that he might adorn his church with the spoil. From the close union subsisting between the head and members, to say that God manifest in the flesh received gifts from the captives is one and the same thing with saying that he distributed them to his church. What is said in the close of the verse is no less applicable to Christ that he obtained his victories, that as God he might dwell among us. Although he departed, it was not that he might remove to a distance from us, but as Paul says, that he might fill all things. We'll get there this afternoon. But you know, it wasn't just, it wasn't just the unseen forces of evil over whom Christ triumphed. Who else did he triumph over? We can also see ourselves as former rebels who were taken captive by the victorious Christ. I'm not making this up. This is how Paul speaks of himself. 2 Corinthians 2.14 But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. From the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown Bible Commentary, they say... Paul regarded himself as a signal trophy of God's victorious power in Christ. His almighty conqueror was leading him about through all the cities of the Greek and Roman world, 
as an illustrious example of his power at once to subdue and to save. The foe of Christ was now the servant of Christ. And to be led in triumph by man is the most, I'm sorry, as to be led in triumph by man is the most miserable, so to be led in triumph by God is the most glorious lot that can befall any. Our only true triumphs are God's triumphs over us. His defeats of us are our only true victories. The image is taken from the triumphal procession of a victorious general. The additional idea is perhaps included, which distinguishes God's triumph from that of a human general, that the captive is brought into willing obedience, 2 Corinthians 10.5, to Christ, and so joins in the triumph. God leads him in triumph as one not merely triumphed over, but also as one triumphing over God's foes with God. End of quote. Back to Psalm 68:18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. John Wesley says that he who as man is ascended into the highest heavens might as God come down to them and dwell with them. Not only in and by his ordinances in which he is present, but also by his spirit dwelling in our hearts. Now we're going to quickly cover the rest of Psalm 68. In Christ, God the Father has saved us from death and sins to resurrection life, to be enthroned with Christ. But just like Israel had battles to face after they were redeemed from Egypt... Christ's church has foes to face. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, Ephesians tells us. We wrestle with dark spirits. The devil and his wicked spirits are fighting a losing battle. They've already been put to open shame, but they won't ever willingly surrender. One image that I can't help coming to my mind is from world, the history of World War II and how hard sometimes it was to seek out and destroy though they had no hope of winning the Japanese forces in the Pacific theater in certain places and times. When the tide of the war was clearly against Japan, often those soldiers were so committed, they would hole up wherever they found themselves and fight to the death. They wouldn't surrender. Now, not to, to absolutely demonize them, that's not the point, but I'm just making an analogy. Satan and his forces were defeated at the cross, right? They're still fighting, though. So we still have battles to face. But the rest of the psalm says, wherever the Lord's enemies hole up to fortify their position, wherever they attempt to flee for cover, whatever higher ground they attempt to capture, from there the Lord will drag them to their doom. The one at God's right hand will stretch forth his scepter from Zion and rule in the midst of his enemies. His people have all they need in the day of his power. The Lord Jesus gives his own armor to his church, as Paul will tell us in Ephesians 6. He will build his church, his temple, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The dragon and his beasts from the sea and the land will not prevail against Jesus Christ. So let's read the rest of the psalm quickly. Verses 
verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, as the seed of the woman has struck the serpent's head. He will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead. The princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. And here come the Gentiles in willing obedience. Verse 31, nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. By the way, in the Greek Old Testament, that's the same phrase, blessed be God. Paul uses in Ephesians 1.3, starting out. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there's so many links between the wording of this psalm and key wording throughout Ephesians. Some wonder if Paul had Psalm 68 in mind all the way through Ephesians. But the God of Israel, it says, gives his power and strength to his people. Clinton Arnold says, this thought corresponds significantly with Paul's prayerful concern for his readers of this letter. He prays for God to strengthen them and then concludes with the letter with the admonition to receive strength from the Lord in order to stand against the enemies, Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. It's also significant to note that this psalm ends with the victorious divine warrior giving his, of his power and resources. There's that word for giving. Giving of his power and resources to help his people in the battle. He has received his gifts and booty from the vanquished armies, but the overriding concern is his ability to give and equip his people to stand firm against the enemies. So again, what's the big idea of... Ephesians 4, 7 through 10, reflected in Psalm 68, the church has all it needs from its ascended Lord. Remember who Paul was writing to, the church at Ephesus. It hadn't been that many years since the gospel had been brand new in Ephesus. God had done great things. The name of Jesus was exalted. People had thrown their magic scripts and things they used for the occult into the fire. 
They rejected the old gods because Jesus is Lord. Even a riot in Ephesus couldn't stop the advance of the gospel there. In fact, it was a reaction to the fact that idol sales were going down. But they were still in Ephesus, one of the mightiest cities in the empire, which was still dominated by these demonic gods. Their families did not understand when these pagans became Christians. The Jews who refused to believe in their Messiah, Jesus, wanted to destroy the church. In fact, they wanted to destroy Paul personally. That's why he was in chains as he wrote this. Because Jews from the province of Asia, from Ephesus, had pointed him out for destruction in the temple. Falsely accusing him. Behind all this, Paul sees the unseen forces of the devil at work still. They're still fighting. They won't give up. And so as we move into the second part of Ephesians, the church has a big job. We're not naturally unified in our human natures. We will naturally divide over things. We will naturally work against each other. We will naturally be selfish, not loving towards each other. We naturally don't want to speak the truth and love to each other. But that is our job. And it's our job to, as one body, maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, it's our job to wage spiritual warfare until the war is all the way done. But we can do it. Because our Lord, the Lord of the church, the head of the body, has ascended to the place of highest authority. And he has won so much spoil that he has no limit to what he can give us. We'll see more about that, obviously, as we round out the sermon text this afternoon. But for now, remember, the church has all it needs from its ascended Lord, and you individually have all you need. You're right where he wants you to be. You are the person he wants you to be. He will change you. He will sanctify you. But you're, you are the person he wants where he wants in the body And he's poured out his triumph already on you. Don't tell me you cannot live the Christian life or you cannot get along with the church or you cannot fulfill Christ's plan for you. Christ has not discarded you. You have everything you need in him. The church has all it needs from its ascended Lord. We will finish the sermon text Because there are still some important things to see there. We will do that this afternoon. But for now, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for the kind attention of your people. Help us to get a taste of the glory which belongs to our Savior. He is crucified. And that is his glory, yes. But because of that, because he humbled himself to the death of the cross, as we will see further this afternoon, you have given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord, to your glory, Father. Help us to submit to our Lord Christ gladly, knowing he knows what's best for us. He put
put us here for a reason. He has a comprehensive plan for each one of us and all of us together. Help us to approach him as the exalted Lord that he is, who is victorious and for whom nothing is too hard. Help us to trust his plan for our individual lives and for our church. Help us to rejoice in his triumph and not act as if we have a defeated Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.